Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. We are moving off the last dance talk and the basketball talk for a week. Thank you for putting on the Windy City Podcast. Great to have you clicking in today. Len Casper, 16 years, the voice of the Chicago Cubs, coming up in a matter of moments. I miss baseball. Japan's coming back. Korea's already playing. Baseball, you're going to figure this out, right? We're not going to have the millionaires versus the billionaires. Are we really going to have to hear this for the next two weeks on how they're going to figure out the revenue? Hey, billionaires, you're going to lose money this year. Hey, millionaires, you're going to make 25% of what you normally make. Yeah, that sucks, but world's smallest violin is playing here. And when you think about on the field, I'm trying to figure out, has this been good for the Cubs and or Sox if you play half a season? Michael Kopech might start the year with the White Sox. Does that help them maybe make a stunning run to the postseason this year? Are the Cubs benefiting because John Lester doesn't have to go through the 162-game slog? None of that will matter, though, right, if you don't get back on the field. So let's hope they can get it done. Without further ado, I want to bring in my conversation with the voice of the Chicago Cubs, Len Casper. Marquee Sports Network now. Len has been doing it for, well, we're coming up on two decades, and he, we cover a lot of ground here. Chris Bryant, Javi Baez, Anxiety, Joe Madden, World Series. A lot to cover here with Len, and it starts right now. just a game for I've seen other teams and it's never the same when you're born in Chicago you're blessed and you're healed the first time you walk into Wrigley Field our heroes wear pinstripes heroes in blue give us the chance to feel like heroes too forever we'll win and if we should lose, we know someday we'll go all the way. Yeah, someday we'll go all the way. Coming up on his 16th year in the Chicago Cubs TV booth, now, of course, with the Marquee Sports Network. Len Casper, that's a hell of a run in Chicago, is it not? Pretty fortunate, Mark. Uh, it does make me feel old at times, but ultimately I just feel very blessed and fortunate 
uh, to have been here that long, and uh, hopefully we can at least double it, if not uh, triple it, and uh, would love to spend the rest of my career and life here in Chicago. Can you tell the story of when you got the job? I know there was a number of candidates, and, of course, Chip was leaving, the booth was changing. What do you remember about applying and being considered and ultimately finding out it was going to be you? Well, I actually didn't apply for it at first uh, because when I saw that Chip was leaving, it was actually I was on the Marlins team bus uh, in Philadelphia uh, either before the final game of the season or, you know, on the way to the airport, whatever it was. And I remember thinking, Dave O'Brien will get that job. Uh, but a couple weeks went past, and actually I, I got a call from Andy Mazur who said, uh, have you applied for the Cubs job? And I said, no, why? And he said, I'm hearing your name. And I said, really? So I uh, got off the phone and, and called John McDonough, and John and I still to this day laugh. I I said to him, you probably don't know who I am. And he said, oh, I definitely know who you are. And uh, he then got me in touch with Bob Vorwald from WGN. And really within about a half hour, uh, I had a – a scheduled interview to you know fly to Chicago and, and talk to WGN and the Cubs. Uh, they were not going to call me, uh, but they definitely had me on their short list. And so it became pretty apparent early on that it was down to three people. It was O'Brien, Matt Veskers, and, and me. Uh, I had actually replaced Dave in Florida when he went to ESPN, and we were friends. And in the case of Vascursion, Matt was instrumental in me getting my first opportunity in Milwaukee because he started doing the FX Game of the Week back in 1999. And that allowed me to to dip my toes in the TV water uh, to do uh, some fill-in games for the Brewers. So it was kind of an interesting process. Matt and I stayed in touch more than, than Obi and I did, but we all did compare notes. And ultimately... Dave had a one-year uh, – he had one year left on his contract with ESPN, and they were not going to let him out. And Matt had two years on his Padres deal. I had not yet signed my new contract uh, with Fox Sports Florida, even though I was welcomed back. So I got the job by default in some ways, and it worked out well for everybody. Uh, eventually, OB uh, went home and is now the TV voice of the Red Sox. Vascursion is basically uh, the face and voice of MLB Network and now Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN. And uh, I'm back in the Midwest and have, you know, been here for, as you said, 16 years. And we uh, raised our son here. And my, my parents are still in Michigan. My sister's in Chicago. My in-laws live in Milwaukee. So it's really one of those situations, Mark, where you look back a decade and a half later and all the parties can say that thankfully worked out for the best for everybody involved that's crazy like you were not the way i'm just hearing that you are not going to apply until andy told you that hey they're saying your name around here len and then you jumped on it kudos by the way getting you know not sitting back and and presenting yourself but that's pretty amazing how life works yeah i feel uh very grateful uh and and you know i andy knows how i feel about him but that was a really nice thing for him to do. And, you know, there are a lot of people along the way, I'm sure you could name who, you know, it felt at the time like a real small thing. But it, when you look back, it really was a life changer. And, and that was definitely one of those moments. I probably should have applied earlier, but 
it was just one of those things. I just didn't think I had any sort of shot at it, so I, I, I kind of waited in the wings. Maybe waiting was a good thing. I don't know. Yeah. But it worked out, let's put it that way, and it makes for a good story. Yeah, whenever I have a bad thought about David Kaplan, I remind myself, don't ever say anything bad about Cap. You'd be nowhere in this business. That dude helped you a ton. So, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. You know, that's you got to remember who helped you along the way, even if I might have you know, occasionally disagree with a cappy point or two. Were you, uh, what kind of kid were you laying around baseball? Were you the kid that was keeping score, sitting there with your dad? Or, I mean, what, what, I guess, what level of nerdness did you have? Were you collecting baseball cards and putting them in the, those plastic things that in some of the organized kids, and I know you're very organized, they have the whole seasons perfectly. This is, uh, 85 and here's 86. Were you that kid or was it more, I don't know, baseball was something you loved, but it wasn't your, your number one as a say 10 to 15 year old no it was uh, the, the former i i was uh, totally into it i would um you know there were a couple of, of summers where i probably was you know 11 or 12 and out in the front of our house we had um, some steps and i would throw a rubber ball against the steps and i would kind of simulate a game and kind of announce it in my head i later played tabletop baseball and recreated uh, an entire season. Um, so I, I was that I was that kid. I, I did collect some baseball cards. I wasn't crazy about the baseball card thing. I still have some some books of cards, but uh, for me it was the the tabletop games. And you know, I I would start uh, I would start those games at the time the actual time of day when you know if there were a you know Braves Giants game, I would start it at four o'clock Eastern because that would be where you know, when the game would start on the West Coast, uh, you know, I'd stay up late and do the, the, the West Coast games at 10 o'clock when everybody was already in bed. And, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I uh, listened to Ernie Harwell and Paul Carey on Tigers Radio, and that's really what kind of spurred my interest in the broadcasting side of it. Ernie was my hero and uh, to this day is, uh, even though he's been gone for about 10 years, and I was very fortunate to become friends with him. And uh, he he helped me in a lot of ways, and I'm very thankful for that. What's a tabletop game? For those of us who don't know, I can't be the only one, and I feel bad that I don't know, but I I, I kind of want to learn here, Len. Well, Stratomatic is kind of the most famous. Um, okay. I played Sherco. Uh, they all kind of have a similar thing. I played Strat um, hockey and basketball, and and for Stratomatic, essentially, you have player cards. And then you have a game console, and you roll the dice, and the combination of the numbers will indicate kind of what happens. So for Sherco, what generally I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly how it went, but what would happen is you would have the you take the small number first, so you would roll the dice, and you know if it were a one and a six, that would be 16. If it were a two and a four, it'd be 24, and then. You had ratings for pitchers, ratings for batters, and you know you would you kind of compare those two, and then you put you in a category, and then the result of the play, and sometimes it's a fly ball to a quadrant, and you have to actually place your your fielders in in a certain position. So you'd have a, a batter rating for batting average, for power, for speed. Uh, pitchers had a strikeout rate, all of that stuff. So you would basically manage the game. You'd write out lineups and and play a nine inning game and. It was really fun. I, I enjoyed it very much. I never played it against anyone specifically. I would always make up the games myself uh, and play them. But you know, essentially, you're recreating a, a major league game. And a lot of people online, you'll see now on Twitter, 
I think Mike Wilner, one of the Blue Jays broadcaster broadcasters, is replicating the Blue Jays season, and he's using APBA or maybe be is it beyond the pen or uh, pursue the pennant? There you Might go. Be pursue the pennant. There, a lot of those games were similar, but um, just slightly different. And um, yeah, it's fun. You know, it's it's fun to talk that stuff with with people who who did that in the past. I had friends who were doing it, and I always was like, what are you doing, and how long is this going to take? And that doesn't look like that much fun. But they loved it, and clearly you did too. And I'm just, you know, it says on your Wikipedia page, Len, that you graduated summa cum laude from Arquette. So I think there was some some early Len Casper brain power perhaps going on here that you applied to baseball. That seems fair, right? I don't know about that. Maybe it says more about my OCD tendencies. But, yeah, no, I, I really got into it. And I would, when I was in school in the, uh, you know, in the fall and then in the spring when the season would start, I would I would pour over the – I'd get to school a half hour early, go into the library, and I'd pour over the, the box scores from the night before so I could kind of memorize what teams would do. So when I did have, you know, the Reds against the Dodgers or whatever, I would make out a lineup that felt – accurate you know who, who who would be in the lineup against fernando today you know who who would who would the dodgers have in their lineup against mario soto and i would try to kind of run the game like i thought the the two managers would normally do it um and so that was a that was a big big deal to me it's interesting listening to you and i know that you started your broadcast career you were at wtmj in milwaukee for quite a while and you were doing talk shows do you I don't know if regret is the right word because that's probably not accurate, but it seems like you should have been doing minor league baseball at 22 years old and gone that path with this much passion for it. Well, I tried and I couldn't get a job. I right out of college, I applied to pretty much every single and double a team in the country and got a lot of rejection letters that I did not save. Unfortunately, I wish I had. Uh, and then I kind of went the other path and it worked out well because I stayed in, you know, a big league market in Milwaukee. I didn't have to go to a smaller market and kind of work my way back. And I was offered a job at WTMJ and I accepted it. And the next day I got a call from one of the people I had applied to. And it was a general manager in, I believe Madison, Wisconsin. It was a Midwest league team. And he was going to Springfield, Illinois, and I don't know if the team was moving or if it were, was a new franchise. I think it was the Springfield Hatters, whatever the name was. He basically offered me the play-by-play job, and I said if he had called me a day earlier, I would have taken it. And I just couldn't break my commitment to WTMJ, and I think they only spent a year or two in Springfield and moved to Lansing, uh, which is not far from my hometown, and they're now the Lugnuts. So, yeah, if I had gone that route, I'm sure something would be different. You know, I can't imagine I would be the Cubs announcer. I think I probably would be doing something else or working for a different team because if you change that path, you know, you you have to feel like everything else changes. So I don't regret <laughs> that one day of my life. I, I definitely don't. But at the time, you probably were like, oh, my God, I could have been doing play-by-play, but I'm here. I'm sure you had great days at TMJ, but – Along the, it, you wouldn't be human if you didn't have some level of, I could be doing this now, but I'm doing this, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have been making any money, not that that was really the point. And I I I did once I started at TMJ, I was I was part-time, but about 6 months in, I I became full-time and uh you know, that once I kind of got on that 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 track, uh I was kind of locked in for at least a few years and it was very helpful. You know, I didn't love doing talk shows, but it was helpful in terms of ad-libbing and, you know, doing rain delays and that sort of thing. And I do think it helped me uh, gain some depth of knowledge and ways to, you know, if you have moments that are that are dead spots in the middle of a game to kind of keep the conversation flowing. Uh, so that part of it was very helpful. Uh, I know, hey, I know you've done it too. I, I, I remember doing like a 1 to 4 p.m., slot on a Saturday afternoon. I think it was 4th of July weekend, uh, 78 degrees outside, just a perfect day in Milwaukee. Uh, I didn't have any guests. Uh, the Brewers were bad. The Packers hadn't started yet. And I think Wimbledon had just finished or whatever. And there was nothing to talk about. And I, I remember an hour or two, maybe after I got like two calls, the first 90 minutes thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to finish this show. And I'm guessing it sucked. And I never want to ever hear it. If anyone ever has a tape of it, I don't care to hear it. But the point is you get through it. Right. And, and if you can survive that, and, and I don't know if you had that moment on the air where you're just like, I got nothing today and I got to figure out a way to get through the next 35 minutes on my own. That's really hard. That's way harder than doing a big league baseball game where you've got action in front of you. So if you can do that, you can do a lot of things, and I'm glad I went through that. I appreciate you bringing that up because 35 minutes, yes. And sometimes if you just have a segment and you're in the break and you don't know what you're coming back to and and you've got to get through even 10 minutes and you know no one's calling, 10 minutes, (laughs) good luck. If you know that there's nothing there, it's it's not easy. I so everybody thinks they can do a talk show. It's 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 not every day is littered with phone lines and guests, and you don't get to talk to Len Casper. So it's it's well, especially when you're 27. You know, it's one thing when you've done this for 20 years, and it's not easy, but you you just know you're going to get through it because you've done it. But it's that first couple of chances you get, and you're trying to get good at it and you're really more in survival mode than you are in the quality of the performance, that's, that, that's, that's the trick, where it's literally not even about trying to be interesting. It's just getting to the top of the hour. And that's perilous, and it's scary as hell. And I never want to do that again. <laughs> um, but I do think we all should go through that and learn the tricks of the trade and kind of the survival mode of doing it. It's, uh, it's quite an experience. You've made me think about your article that you wrote in the Daily Herald, I believe it was back in 2014, where you you started talking about dealing with anxiety, and you mentioned OCD earlier, and just like the fear of just getting to the top of the hour, I think almost, you know, falls under that umbrella too. What? Why did you, I don't know, want to reveal yourself more there, Len? I thought it was great, and I, you know, nobody, everybody wants to know who's in the booth and what they're about, but it's rare that you sort of see a peek behind the curtain like that, and I, I I mean, I can relate to a ton of what you were saying, so I, I just, this is a long time after you've written it that we're talking right now, but I wanted to give you huge props for doing it, and, and just ask you, like, why, why did you feel the urge to do it at that time? I think the main reason was, and I was writing a column 
every week. And if you remember the, the 2014 Cubs were not always particularly interesting. Um, I think I just kind of thought, you know, I'm asked to write this column. I, I enjoy writing about baseball. There doesn't seem to be much to write about that's really that important right now. And, and it just kind of a, an epiphany hit, like, why don't I just write about that? Um, I think I had seen an article, and I might have put it in the column, about a, a horse racing announcer, I think, who had kind of come forward with, hey, I've been dealing with this. And I thought, you know what, why not? And it, it wasn't that difficult, really, or it didn't feel brave at the time. It just it felt like it might resonate with some people. And it, it wasn't out of boredom, but it was definitely a, let's try this. And, and you know, I still, to this day, and thank you for mentioning it, I still have people who, uh, who, who tell me that, that it meant a lot to them. I only had one person, to be honest with you, who said, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell people that, it was great you wrote it, but I, I wouldn't talk much about it anymore. Kind of the idea of don't show your weakness, and I, I I just fundamentally disagree with that. You know, I don't I don't go out of my way to talk about it, but if people want to bring it up and ask about it, I think it's it's a pretty common bond we all possess and have. And I don't feel in any way that showing that there, there's a quote weakness or something uh, that that isn't perfect about you. Uh, diminishes your standing. I, I think, if anything, it makes you more human and relatable, and, and I have no problem doing that. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's an old-school thought right there. It, it's actually a strength that you're willing to talk about it and show yourself that takes courage. I, I know you just said that you didn't feel like, I don't know how exactly you put it, but you weren't doing anything big. But the whole that's – and listen, uh, the Cubs were – out in front, and I, I know he passed away recently, I, and it's, I, I'm forgetting his name right now, but uh, the mental skills coach, Ken... Uh, oh, Revisa. Yeah, yeah. Who was, was? He seemed like he was beloved in there, and, you know, the, <laughs> players deal with an enormous amount of pressure every single day to go out there and perform, and, I mean, maybe it's not quite the same for a broadcaster, but... I mean, I, I, what's your even even a, a standard night game, Len? How much do you how how do you get yourself to feel comfortable that you know everything? I know you stay on top of it all, but there's a certain amount of you know I got to do this much prep, but I also don't want to completely run myself into the ground to feel ready every night during a 162 game season and add you know add in spring training and everything else. Well, experience helps a lot. Uh, I think you're able to streamline your prep as you move along. Uh, working for one team and every day, a lot of, you know, half your prep is really what happened the day before. Uh, there is a lot of information you need to have, but I think where I have improved on that is to be open or have the tools available to look up something quickly that I don't immediately know. And that's where you know, having a laptop helps a lot without taking away my focus from the game. Um, being able to say I don't know if there's a question that I don't have the answer to. I think a lot of guys who do what we do struggle admitting they don't know something. But again, we're all human and you're not expected to be a walking encyclopedia. Uh, and then the other thing is just really, really making sure that once the game starts that I'm focused mostly on what's happening on the field. 
secondarily, but very close to that, always paying attention to what my partner says and being able to bounce off that and react to that. And then also being able to listen to the producer and the director. You know, you're a bit of a traffic cop in there, and it can get overwhelming at times. But the better prepared you are to kind of ad lib, it just makes everything so much easier. And I, I've gotten better at kind of emptying my brain. Uh, what, what's the for love of the game is clear the mechanism, right? That was kind of that cheesy line that uh, Kevin Costner used. But there's something to be said for that. You know, you have all the information in the back in your back pocket, but you only pull it out when it's really necessary or it fits. And just making sure that the game is the thing and that you are able to see things and react in real time. And it just comes with experience. There's nothing that really replaces it. Yeah, that listening part for anybody who's ever, I don't know, A, done a game or B, done anything where you're, I'm thinking talk show side, where you're doing a show with someone, you might, certainly I think early in people's careers, you don't hear nearly as much of your partner as you do as you get a little bit more comfortable. I'm assuming that, I mean, you and JD have had a great partnership for a long time now, but it's it's it has to get easier and easier and, and you that you're even more in tune with him as the years go on. Absolutely. And there look, there are times when you just you hear from your your people in the truck and they're only gonna talk to you when he's talking. They're not gonna talk to me while I'm talking. And so every once in a while I'll say, Hey, did did J D just mention this? Or sometimes we'll repeat something that was just said and you know, you, you kinda get dinged for it. Hey, you know, listen to your partner and that's just part of the gig, but no, I, I, it's paramount to me to, to be engaged with him and locked in. And, you know, when he throws out something that he wants me to jump on that I don't miss it. And, uh, over the course of, uh, a long season, you know, that relationship matters more than just about any. And I'm, I'm really fortunate working with a very curious guy intellectually, you know, JD really prepares like, like a play-by-play announcer would prepare. He doesn't just play the ex-jock who shows up and reacts to whatever happens on the field. You know, he comes armed with information. Uh, he's on fan graphs every day. Uh, he knows what WOBA means and uh, FIP and all those things. And if there's certain things he doesn't understand, you know, he'll ask. And I, and I love that about him. He's very open-minded. Let's talk about that balance from WOBA and FIP and XFIP and ISO and everything else that uh, is out there nowadays that the sabermetricians love. And I, I was listening to your podcast with uh, Tim Kirshen, who's like, you know, it's important that we actually pay attention to what's on the field and not play the game on a computer. You know, But you have to balance that, that A, you can speak that language, but also you know, somebody who doesn't pay any attention to that at all, who just wants to watch a Cubs game and, and, and be connected with their broadcasters, understands what's going on, too. Has that been a – have you guys had a lot of conversations about that? How have you found your balance? Yeah, I think I've gotten better at it, and I do way less stats than I used to, and I just try to make it understandable and relatable. And, you know, you don't have to use defensive efficiency, for instance – as a as a as a stat, you can just say, you know, the 2016 Cubs were historically great at turning balls in play into outs. Uh, their number in the defensive efficiency, which is that number, whatever it is, 972, you know, it's 97.2 percent of balls in play were converted into outs. Um, it's not that difficult to understand, so you kind of have to define it. But you know, you don't have to get into the weeds on the number to essentially convey a thought that this team is great at something or this team is really bad at something. 
Remember last year, the Cubs made way more outs on the bases than anybody in in the rest of the sport, and it was something like 45 outs on the bases. And the next team on the list was 37. You know, that's that's pretty easy to understand, right? Sure. And so stuff like that that I, I grab onto, and some of the esoteric stuff is interesting at times because, again, we have a lot of time. Uh, during a blowout game, for instance, to maybe educate people on the numbers that front offices are using. And I think that's the big takeaway, Mark, is that if if the Cubs front office uses a certain stat and ignores another one, it's important for us to kind of reflect that. And that's why I don't lose, you know, lose sleep over RBI totals and things like that. You hear Theo talk about it all the time, on-base skills, the ability to drive the ball, right? That's on-base percentage and slugging. I mean, those two numbers matter a heck of a lot more uh, than necessarily raw batting average and uh, RBI and run totals. You know, those are old-school numbers, and if guys hit milestones or if Chris Bryant leads the league in runs and Javi Baez leads the league in RBIs, of course we're going to talk about it. I just think at the end of the day, if Baez leads the league in RBIs, that's not necessarily the best category statistically to look at to tell you what kind of year he had. And I think most people who watch the game now understand that. Well, let's talk about the team just a little bit here, Len. And since you brought up Javi and KB, there seems to be, and maybe this is just what's being reported in the media, but it does seem you know, fairly accurate, that the Cubs are preferring Javi on a long-term deal than Chris Bryant. I mean, are you getting that sense? And why is my question uh i mean maybe it's his versatility and a million other things but like is that is that the sense that you're getting i don't think it i I wouldn't frame it as they prefer one over the other uh at all i i think right now it's mostly about uh the individual situation Uh, in the case of bryant uh, i don't suspect he would be up for a contract extension before he hits free agency because of his agent, Scott Boris, who's, you know, guys don't all go to free agency, um, but but most of them do, and they want to hit the market. Uh, And I think the Cubs understand that that's likely to happen in the case of of Bryant. Uh, Baez seems to be much more interested in a potential extension that could be under market. Uh, He's younger, and, you know, I think, is viewed as kind of still on the rise, but I'm not, uh, I'm not objective here on this one. I'm, uh, I just, I love both guys so much. And I think KB in particular has been, uh, if not overlooked, but maybe uh, underrated the last two or three years because of the way he started his career. You go from rookie of the year to MVP, you're, you're setting the bar really, really high. And when he has a year like last year, and by the way, he was an all-star, uh, and, and most of the numbers look pretty good. Uh, I just feel like he gets dinged unfairly by a lot of people. I don't think internally he does, but I do think fans sometimes expect a little bit uh, too much out of him. So I'll be fascinated to see in both cases how it goes, but I would agree with you as you asked the question that, uh, you know, if you're asking me what's the most likely scenario, I, I guess at this point, with all else being equal, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, so nothing is really equal, uh, I would be more surprised if 
Bryant is here and Baez is not versus the other way around based on all the things that you mentioned leading into the question. Yeah, and I'm not the least bit objective here either. Uh, Chris Bryant has been phenomenal for the team and phenomenal for us in the media to deal with. And I just look at him like the guy plays third, he plays first, he can play left, he can play right, he bakes chocolate chip cookies. Why wouldn't you want that guy on your team? And Javi's absolutely phenomenal too. Uh, but I guess the reason why I slightly lean, if I could only have one with Chris, I just think Javi's, you know, he's smaller. And over time, a guy who relies on his speed, it's harder to predict that, you know, that that level of performance can maintain itself is the way I'm looking at it. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah, and I think I, I think for Chris, uh, his versatility is, is really important and to me makes him incredibly valuable. Uh, I look at his offensive skill set. And I think there's a lot of consistency there that you will miss when he's no longer on your team. He's a lot like Derek Lee. If Derek could play third and left and right, you know, he was he was a gold glove first baseman. But uh, the, the, the reason you would lean toward Javi long term is not only how great he is defensively and as a base runner and his baseball IQ and his ability to hit you know, 35 to 40 home runs. Uh, but I think it's the shortstop position. Not only is there a premium at that spot, the Cubs don't have a lot of depth there. Uh, you know, if Rizzo w- were to leave at some point, you could move Bryant to first base. Uh, I suppose it's easier to find a guy who plays a corner spot in the infield or outfield and get some production. The Cubs don't have Glaber Torres waiting in the wings uh, to play short. Addison Russell is no longer a Cub. That's a position that, that, that you really you know need to have a guy of his caliber there. And beyond that, if you lose Javi, I think you lose a lot. Uh, so, you know, that to me would probably lean things a little bit more toward bias. And again, as I said, the other part is just finances. You know, when KB is a free agent, you know, you're probably paying 100 cents on the dollar to, to, to re-sign him versus Baez, you know, it might be 85 cents on the dollar because he wants uh, to stay here and get a little more security. So it, it, it literally could come down to just a financial question, and you can get one guy for six years as opposed to the other guy who wants eight years and, you know, a gap of 50 or $60 million, however it works out. It'll be very interesting, too, uh, with everything that's going on with the pandemic and the economics of baseball, what this looks like when those guys actually do hit the market now, because it, it's not going to it's it's got to change, I would think, from where we were, you know, at the end of last season. Do you think we're going to have baseball then? Uh, I think it's 50 50. I would I'd love to lean 55 45 to the yes. Uh, they're going to try like hell to do it. And if will matters, it'll happen because both sides have a major vested interest in getting it done. But the obstacles are real. Uh, I do think the 67-page health document was as comprehensive as it gets. I think there's some wiggle room there uh, for the players who want just a tad bit more freedom, uh, especially when they're on the road and then in the, you know, inside the clubhouse. Uh, but I think the financial part of it's going to be tricky as well. Uh, you know, I guess the cynic in me says they're going to agree on the health stuff. The government's going to tell them they can do it. And the, the path is clear to play baseball in some form or fashion this year. And then they can't come to a, an agreement on what the payer, players get paid. Or they'll come to some sort of financial agreement and then we'll have, uh, have to take a step back on the health st- side of it. 
but I'm not a cynic at heart, and I do think that uh, the, the two things are, are surmountable, um, but you got to thread a needle here, and the fact that we don't have a ton of time to get it done might actually be a good thing uh, whenever you have a deadline, and it looks to me like a soft deadline is the first week of June. Uh, that gives you a lot of incentive to get something done. So I really hope it happens. I don't know if it will, but uh, I'm pulling hard for it to happen. Are you nervous for yourself? That's a good question. Uh, my my hunch is we'll probably do road games from a studio. I suppose uh, there's a tiny chance we could travel. And, yeah, I think, you know, part of me, because of my age and my health situation, you know, I would love to get it and and not have to go through hell and then feel like I'm through the woods and have the antibodies and all that stuff. But on the other hand, I'm I'm hearing all these stories of potential long-term effects of this virus that even if you survive it, you know, it's not something you really want to go through. And I turn 50 next year, so, you know, I don't want to put my family at risk. Uh, I don't want to have to self-quarantine for two weeks. Uh, so I, in the end, I really don't want to get this virus. So, yeah, I, I, I'm probably more cavalier about getting it personally than I should be. And I think once we do have a plan for how this is going to start and, and, you know, if I'm a part of it in any way, Mark, I'm going to get tested, uh, which is good. You know, I want to make sure that I take all the proper precautions. And for me, it's more about making sure I don't pass it along or put anybody else in harm's way than I am worried about myself specifically. So that, that's interesting, by the way, that if, you know, if, if it goes the way of they play the home games at Wrigley and then whatever, wherever they're traveling, you're thinking that maybe the announcers won't travel to road games. Have you heard that? Yeah. I mean, I, I know that it's been talked about and no final decision has been made, but I think, you know, the bottom line with a traveling party is, they're going to really pare it down to only the essential people. I think there there might be some coaches who might not be able to travel. I think they're going to really limit uh, that group because, you know, if you had 10 people, that, that, that adds uh, 10 more people. You have to make sure, you know, are testing negative and are not, you know, coming in contact with people who might be positive. So, I'm willing to do whatever they ask us to do. I think philosophically, I'd always rather be at the ballpark uh, to call the game, but uh, that may not be in the cards this year, and I'll I'll do whatever they ask. Yeah, let let's wrap wrap up with this because you know, you're just making me think of you know some of the managers out there. They're not young, and our favorite Joe Madden. You know, it's mid 60s there. So uh, and and Joe keeps great shape of himself and all that, but it's, it's gotta be a little scary for somebody like that. And, and some of the older coaches and a lot of these, you know, there's, there's a certain group in baseball that perhaps don't live the most, uh, you know, aren't in the best of health. Right. So that part of it seems I, to me, the most scary part, if it, you know, if, if, and how do you separate them and, and make sure that like you're safe and it doesn't put baseball in a big, big, uh, liability situation. Yeah, I think some players have, have commented on that specifically that, you know, Dusty Baker, I think, is 70. You mentioned Joe. Um, if you have an underlying or pre-existing condition, uh, like a heart issue or uh, diabetes or something like that, uh, can be really, really uh, dangerous. And, you know, I think baseball has considered all those things. 
Uh, I think the social distancing part, once the game starts, I'll be curious to see if that is maintained. The the no spitting, the no high fiving, you know, that that that's almost fundamental to the game. And I just I have a feeling guys will involuntarily almost do those things and I don't I don't know how you can not do it. Um yeah, I think we're all curious to see. This is uncharted territory, and the game will look different. And I'm, I'm of the mind, too, of not messing with the rules too much. It's so different as it is, and without fans in the ballpark, the game will look different on television, Mark. I, I think fans want as much normalcy and as, as much familiarity as they can, right? And that's I didn't see the golf tournament last weekend, but I heard uh, from a couple people who thought uh, the broadcast was a little overdone, that it, it kind of became a talk show and people just wanted to watch golf. You know, I do think we have to be careful that when, when baseball does come back, that it looks like the game we know and love as much as possible because all these things are changing and are kind of out of our, own, our control. And I think the players want that routine as much as they can get it as well. I mean, if Javi Baez can't walk up to the batter's box eating sunflower seeds in the middle of a pitch, that's going to be a huge, like a huge yep. adjustment for him, right? Yep. And I just, I, which I always found amazing, like how are you reaching in your back pocket with that batting glove that's got pine tar all over, throwing that into your mouth, spitting it out while the pitch is on the way and then hitting it 500 feet? Yep. Pretty, pretty amazing. Hey, uh, Len, last one here, Joe Madden, we're all going to miss him. And I don't know when you think back on 2016 specifically, if there's a favorite Madden memory that comes to mind. And I think Joe, uh, you know, David Russ going to do a great job, but Joe Madden will always be, uh, in a special place in this town. Is, is there anything that jumps to, to your head on that one? Well, for me, it would be if you plopped me or you into uh, his office before any game that year, uh, game 12, game 47, game 7 of the World Series, game 4 of the Division Series, he was exactly the same every time. There wasn't one thing that was different. And that, to me, is amazing. Uh, no matter the game situation, he just he was calm. Never let the uh, pressure exceed the pleasure. He really lived that. He embodied that. And I think that rubbed off on his team. Uh, there was never a sense of panic. There was never any sense of, I don't know if we can do this. He was just the same guy every single day. And that is amazing. <laughs> because I had butterflies in my stomach before games five, six, and seven, and I'm sure he did too, but he never showed it. Never. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I remember him in the press conference before before game seven in Cleveland, which I still feel incredibly blessed that I was there, and he was completely normal, just no big deal. Uh, and I remember I also like peered my head into the in the clubhouse right before and, and Dexter Fowler's playing whatever video game they had on there, and it's just, you know, two hours before game seven. And then he goes and hits a home run to lead off the game, which is completely in, in, incredible. Um, yeah, that was uh, a, a fun, fun, fun time. I had one more question for you, but I just lost it in my head, so that's okay. Len, great to talk to you. I really appreciate the time. Uh, Marquis, does that change anything for you, by the way? Is, I assume your job is basically the same. 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to have a few more people involved, uh, former Cubs and the like, and a lot of uh, technology, uh, you know, long pre- and post-game shows and some camera things that they'll do during the games. Uh, so it, it will have a very big feel, but it's it's all for Cubs fans. And, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of extra things uh, during the shutdown with uh, being a guest on Cubs 360 every night, that, that kind of thing. Uh, they've got a trivia show they're doing right now. So they're doing a lot of really good work in a time that, you know, a lot of TV networks can't do much. Uh, and, and the people who are in charge uh, have long resumes and have done amazing work. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely uh, very proud to be a part of this startup, uh, even though it is year 16. And uh, I think a lot of it will look and sound the same, but uh, enhanced. Let's put it that way. Well, enjoy it when it gets going here, Len. We're looking forward to listening, of course. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. To wrap up the show today, I pulled out Philadelphia Freedom. Why? Well, it was a top song in 1975. Why 1975? Well... The Chicago Bulls were up three games to two on the Golden State Warriors that year, ended up losing in seven. But those 70s Bulls teams that never won a title, led by Storm and Norman Van Leer and Jerry Sloan and Tom Borwinkle, Bob Love, Chet Walker, all of it, they were Chicago, right? That identity, that rough and tumble, and for those of you who are too young to remember, and I'm actually one of those people, but I heard about it so often that there's something that I just want to celebrate about that 70s team. And Jerry Sloan passed away this past week, 78 years old. Small town Illinois, Evansville, and I think all of us know him mainly from the Utah Jazz and his 1,200-plus wins and playing the Bulls in the finals in 97 and 98. But I've been reading a lot about Sloan this week, and most of it I knew, but there's a lot of stories just about him with people who do not have as much or alcohol troubles. Melissa Isaacson had a great piece, and Jerry trying to be there for people who needed help. Straight class act. Rick Morrissey also wrote a great piece in the Sun-Times on Jerry Sloan. So I just wanted to wrap up the show today honoring one of the great and maybe underappreciated in a little bit athletes in the history of Chicago. When I went to Bulls games as a kid, there was one jersey hanging from the rafters and that was Jerry Sloan. The Blackhawks had tons of banners. The Bulls no championships, no nothing, one number four hanging up there at old Chicago Stadium. It was Jerry Sloan. Now he's joined by Bob Love and Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. I'd love to see number two hanging up there, Norm Van Leer. And you could make a case for some others down the line. But Sloan was the first, man. And uh, a true just superstar of a man and i wanted to honor him to end up the podcast today which i hope you enjoyed please uh subscribe let a friend know to windy city getting it done enos mo watley coming up in the next episode looking forward to that
And uh, thank you so much for listening today. Stay safe out there. We'll see you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.